You want to uh, turn to, if you've got your Bibles with you or your phones, iPads, whatever, Colossians chapter 4. Same little passage we've been working through for the past, well, this will be the full Sunday out of four. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Um, heading into a little bit of verse 4, I might mention in a minute. But um, this is a fourth of four Sundays. We've been working through our prayer month, March prayer month. Um, and as I explained at the beginning of the month when I was preaching about ceaselessness in prayer that comes up, we're going to read this in a second together. Um, prayer encompasses many elements, doesn't it? Um, as it's not just asking, which can sometimes be a kind of false, false notion of prayer. It's just about asking God for stuff. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. There's also, as uh, David was um, helping us understand last week, there is a place for thankfulness in prayer, that God-directed gratitude. Uh, the week before, two weeks ago, Andrew was sharing about watchfulness in prayer, about having a continuing attentiveness to God's presence and his desire for breakthrough in everyday situations. He's been alert to that rather than being alert to it for five minutes in the morning or half an hour if you're feeling extra holy and all that. It's a 24-7 alertness to his presence and his desire to break through. He's been watchful in prayer as well. And of course, when it come, does come to asking, which prayer is also, it's not just about asking for ourselves either. Asking for ourselves is effectively what, what the Bible talks about, petition, asking for yourself. We all want things we want God to do for us and around us and so on. But there's also intercession. It's about praying for others, standing in the gap on behalf of someone else. You're interceding for them in prayer. But even that in itself can have different flavors as well, can't it? It can be Praying for others' freedom from situations, from uh, illness, sickness, from oppression, and so on. Um, but also praying for fellow believers to, to know Jesus even more deeply than they already do as well. But also there's a place for praying for salvation, for people to know Jesus in the first place. Whether this is loved ones or strangers or whole people groups and so on. We're praying that they might know Jesus like we do as well. It's different types of asking. And part of that, like I say, it's about asking for the gospel to spread freely and to take effect in individual lives and in societies. And that is the aspect that Paul is um, talking about explicitly, he requests explicitly in this next verse we now come to. Um, in his two verses, he's talked about ceaselessness in prayer, watchfulness in prayer, thankfulness in prayer, and now he comes to outwardness in prayer. So Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, he says... To the Colossian church, continue steadfastly in prayer, ceaselessness. Just keep, let it be a part of who you are, not just something you do now and again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, watchfulness, with thanksgiving, thankfulness. And then he continues, at the same time, at the same time, while you're doing all that, also, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear. He says, pray for us that God might open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ and that I might make it clear. Why is he asking for this? Why does he feel he needs to? Because isn't he... Isn't he trusting in God's ability to just get on with it? Can't God just do that? Why does he feel the need to ask for this? It could be like a what will be will be attitude. Well, if God wants to save people, he will. So what difference can I or others make? That can be a bit of an attitude sometimes. But then the next question on the back of that, well, if he's not thinking that, maybe Paul 
is thinking, he's of the mind that the outcome is very dependent on him and the Colossian church, and if they don't try hard enough and pray hard enough, people won't get saved. Now, both of those understandings have been popularised by uh, over the centuries by different individuals and sections of the church, and both of those understandings are pretty wonky. They are not scriptural. Um, neither of those are representative of the whole biblical truth about God's rescuing work here on earth and how we get involved in that. Yes, God can save human beings on his own, without us. He can draw them back into relationship with himself through Jesus without any of us being remotely involved. He does do that. And that does happen. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, he was saved on the road to Damascus meeting with the risen Christ. There was no individual involved in that moment. That was just Jesus came to him. The bright shining light blinded him. And even today, there are um, Muslim background believers in the Middle East, in closed persecuting countries, um, who are saved through Jesus meets with them in a dream. And actually, um, current estimates are now that of all the Muslim background believers, people who were Muslim in closed countries who have become Christians, up to a third of them were saved through Jesus meeting with them in a dream. About 30%. Incredible. And some of them, they, they talk about Jesus speaking scripture to them. And they re, when they finally meet other believers, they recite what Jesus said to them. And people go, that is word for word what's in the Bible. Something you've never read before. Jesus does miraculous stuff through dreams. Up to a third of Muslim background believers are saved explicitly, solely through a dream. It's fantastic. One little story, a bit of an aside, but it really helps paint this picture. Um, I was reading just recently about a missionary in Cairo, in Egypt. And um, uh, he, he was suddenly held by, a group of men got, got him by gunpoint and took him hostage. And it was marched through dark alleys and across the city and um, even upstairs and across rooftops. And he was forced at gunpoint to, to jump about four or five feet from one roof to another over an alley. It's terrifying. And he, he was convinced, he was, I'm going to be executed. And he was taken to an abandoned building. And there, these men, ten of them, they revealed they were secret believers. <laughs> they met regularly in secret to worship together and they needed discipling. And they thought, he's the perfect guy to disciple us, but how can we get him to disciple us without getting found out so we'll stage a kidnapping? Every single one of those ten men was saved independently through meeting with Jesus in a dream. And then by Holy Spirit, he miraculously drew them together and then they came up with this great idea of how to get discipled. Probably not the best way of doing it, but it happened. God can save people without us, and he does. But God far prefers to use his people, the church, you and me, as his primary means of reaching the lost right from the start through our conduct as well as our speech. And those times when Jesus does appear to people in dreams, for example, in persecuting nations, he still directs these, those individuals very quickly, miraculously, um, or through them staging pretend kidnappings, uh, to believers who then explain and disciple and nurture them into the deeper truths of what it means to follow him. Even with the Apostle Paul, who was saved through meeting with Jesus on his own, very quickly, immediately, supernaturally, God draws him and Ananias together for his immediate discipleship. He's pulled into the community of believers. God opens eyes, but we still need to become his mouth and his hands, if you like, 
And his intent is for a true family, a community of his people growing together, not just a sea of individuals. We're called into a family. And yet his greatest heart, even greater than that, is that this together dynamic is at the very beginning of the process, including the preaching, the inviting. Uh, If you think about this story, the famous Bible story, many of you will be familiar with it, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She meets with Jesus at the well. What he says, what he reveals, totally transforms her. She goes into the village to tell people, come and see who I've just met. You wouldn't believe who I've just met. He told me everything about my life. And the people, the Samaritans, the Samaritan village, they come and find Jesus. And then in John chapter 4, verse 42, after they come to find him out for themselves, it says, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Her testimony drew them to investigate. Her testimony didn't save them. Her testimony drew, um, drew them to investigate, and then meeting with Jesus for themselves is what changes them. And that's what Paul is asking for here. When he's asking for the Colossian church to pray for him and his associates, he's saying that him and his, him and his friends there, he, he's under house arrest in Rome. And he's asking that he and his friends who are there um, will become God's mouthpiece in the situation that they're in. For opportunity to display and to communicate the good news of Jesus and for that display and communication to be clear and fruitful. And the language he uses is talking about a door for the word to be opened and about the mystery of Christ to be declared. We're just going to look at these two, uh, these two aspects, this language that Paul is using just for a few minutes. Uh, I'll swap the order. We'll look at what is being declared, the mystery of Christ, and then we'll look at how it's being declared, how he's asking for it to be declared, it's for a door for the word to be opened. The mystery and the door. We'll just look at these two things separately. So, first of all, the mystery of Christ. What does Paul mean by that phrase, the mystery of Christ? Because our, our grasp of that word, mystery, typically is about something inexplicable, something unknown, something mysterious. It's got this eerie vibe to the word, isn't it? We talk about murder mysteries, who done it? Or the more, more creepy end of the scale. Anna Norman was reading an Edney Blyton book at the back during setup today. It's the mystery of the hidden house. And there's this mysterious, it always looks like a haunted house on the front. Ooh, what can it be? What's the mystery? What's the secret? Got any Scooby-Doo fans in the house? Yeah, that cartoon great Dane with the best initials in the world. Um, He and his teenage friends, I mean, teenage friend, Shaggy's his owner, isn't he? It's a bit of a weird relationship going on, not quite sure what's happening. Anyway, Scooby-Doo and his friends, they are members of Mystery Incorporated, and they travel around in the mystery machine, and they solve mysteries. It's all all a bit Twilight zone isn't it? It's an eeriness to it. That's how we associate the word. The word used here that Paul is using for mystery is simply referring to something that has been hidden but has now been revealed. Simple as that. That's what he means. So when he uses uh, the same word in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, uh, in another letter of his, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It was hidden, and now it's been revealed. And then in this same letter that we're in today, Colossians, as David pointed out last week, there's a thread of thankfulness 
woven through the earlier chapters that culminate in chapter 4. Um, there's also a, 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 um, a thread about the mystery of Christ is woven through earlier chapters of Colossians that then he brings back in chapter 4. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, he talks about the mystery hidden for ages but is now revealed to his saints. And what is that mystery? What is that truth that's now revealed? He continues in the next verse, to them, the saints, God's people, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. And then a few verses later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, he also continues that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Jesus simply is the mystery now revealed. It's not a revelation about him as much as it's a revelation of him. Jesus is the mystery now revealed. Once hidden, now revealed. And so, with that in mind, let's just think about this for a moment. The identity of who this promised Messiah was going to be was not completely spelled out before he arrived. All the clues were provided. Prophetically, many prophecies were made hundreds, many hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. And they were prophecies about the coming Messiah, which um, talked about um, his birthplace, talked about um, his hometown, his bloodline, what will happen to him during his childhood, during his adulthood, and so on. But it wasn't exactly, he will be called Yeshua bar Joseph, and he will live at 23 Nazareth High Street. It's not that kind of fine detail in terms of clues. They're broad strokes. You see, the, the scene had been set, the background of the picture had been painted, but it wasn't in full focus. The full truth, the full detail remained somewhat hidden. And so, once Jesus does arrive and makes himself known as the Son of God through explicit confession, yeah, what you're saying is true, it's me, he does do that, but also signs and wonders that back it up, plus then those big historical clues to all work together. You add two and two together, you go, ah, oh, okay. People then began to have their eyes open to who he was. But many didn't. Many had it all presented to them blatantly, and yet they remained blind. Which ultimately shows that all the clues and the bigger picture and the finer details can all be laid out, but it still takes Holy Spirit, God himself, to spot a seeking heart and to open that person's eyes for them that they might see Christ for who he truly is. The greatest mystery being revealed by God himself. Because opportunities I've had for conversation, blatant conversation with people, asking more about Christianity and who Jesus is and why I believe what I believe, I can lay it all out. The historical evidence for who Jesus was as a, as a historical person, but also the things he said and did blatantly prove he is who he said he was. The evidence for the resurrection and the philosophical understanding of what it means to be a human and how you find purpose in life and, and how your restless bones are never content unless there's something out there that will make you feel content, that fulfills you and explains everything. Now, we, we talk through these things. Experiential, telling my own story. 
of what he's done for me, telling of answers to prayer and all the clues that point to Jesus being alive and on the throne. And I say to people, does any of that make sense? Does any of that add up for you? And they go, yeah, it does actually. They go, what are you going to do with it? They go, don't know, I don't know if it's really for me. I'm like, what? For me, I don't understand that. But you can spell things out and people still don't see. Jesus himself says, seek and you will find. And people can hear the explicit, to us explicit, uh, a truth and still not see. It takes Holy Spirit, who in his goodness knows who wants to seek him, those who wants to know. And in his good and wise timing, he will open their eyes. So just a question. It's good to pause now and again, isn't it? Just a question. Have you seen Christ for who he is? Has the mystery been revealed to you? And even more than that, are you still seeking him? Are you asking Holy Spirit to open your eyes to more of that mystery of Jesus being revealed? Because if yes, I know you'll know that it is a joy to discover that he has been the one making it possible all along in the first place, that we then discover it wasn't our efforts to seek him that finally paid off, it was his. We then discover he's been pursuing us, don't we? If this is still brand new to you, if you've not seen Jesus for who he is, generally most of us in this room will more than happily tell you our stories that demonstrate that if you seek, you will find. You will find the greatest treasure in the universe. And so, the mystery that Paul is talking about here is simply Jesus being divinely revealed to our human hearts. But then, how can we the church, play our part in this continuing saga of Jesus being revealed to lost souls as the one that we all need, the answer to our constant cravings and our restlessness and our search for purpose and so on. How can we as his people play a part in sharing that good news that Jesus is the one? Well, as Paul points out here, what we can do is pray that a door for the word will be opened and to speak clearly when it does. Let's just look at this bit about door, a door for the word. Because Paul is not asking for the Colossian church um, to pray for him to be released from his imprisonment, isn't he? He's not asking for that. He's there because of these malicious Jews, and he's, he's been sent all the way to, to Rome to, to meet with the higher powers for pleading his case and so on. And He's using it to, his advantage, to, to, his, to God's advantage for the gospel. He's not using it to his advantage so much. And I've got to be honest... Asking for them to pray for me to get out of prison will be my first choice. Can you get me out of prison so I can do more for the gospel? He's like, I can do plenty here. Paul's simply asking that they get opportunity to preach Christ. What's fascinating, he must be aware of doors being closed in this respect, otherwise he wouldn't be asking for one to open. He uses this kind of picture language about doors quite a lot. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 uh, he says, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. He loves this kind of metaphor. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, in Troas, it's a place in Turkey, you think of ancient Troy, it's the same place. In Troas, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Doors opening, we, we, it's an easy picture to grasp, isn't it? Uh, Jesus does it himself. Elsewhere in scripture, Jesus says, when I was talking about seeking you will find, in the same breath, Jesus says, knock and it will be opened. 
which is, um, as I described before, talking about people wanting to find him. If you knock on the door, I'll open it to you. You've got to knock. I'm ready. Do you want me? But then he also flips this picture language by being on the other, placing himself on the other side of the door in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where he's speaking to a church who are indifferent, they're lazy, they're apathetic, and he says to them, you can hear his heart out loud. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now he's the one who's knocking. He's on the outside. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This need for a door to be opened, again, demonstrates that it's currently not opened. Jesus is saying, we open the door. There's this barrier to Jesus being welcomed and wanted and invited and received. I mean, if you think, just picture a kind of incident where someone is, is um, they're, really, they're really upset or they're angry or they're ashamed or whatever it is whatever it might be, and, and a tendency can be sometimes to shut yourself away in the bathroom or whatever. I don't want to talk. I'm just slamming the door shut. don't want to talk. But someone who loves them and wants to work through it with them and find, find peace or healing, whatever it might be, will need to be talking to them through the door. Um, but there come a point where you go, just, can, can you open the door so we can talk properly? And you hope and pray that happens. But once that door is opened, literally, the person, okay, they unlock the door and they let you in. Once that literal door is open, the figurative walls come down as well, don't they? Speech is no longer muted by this big lump of wood. You can see each other's faces clearly, and love is allowed to have more of its way in that moment. It's like, okay, we can eyeball each other now. You can see I love you. Let's talk this through without a door in the way. In the same way here, spiritual doors of ignorance or belligerence, rebellion, anger, apathy, shame, can be lots of reasons these all block the good news of Jesus taking root and breathing new life into dead and listless hearts. People shut doors, put walls up, don't they? We've done it, haven't we? We've all done it. And this is why Paul asked the Colossian church to pray about his situation, because he knows it will make a difference. There are spiritual doors, and there's only one person who can open spiritual doors. It's the creator himself. We feeble humans, we cannot cure or remove people's sinful attitudes or sense of shame, whatever it might be. These are all things that are so rooted in our souls that only ultimately we can help and individuals can help themselves in those moments. But ultimately that kind of stuff can only, that kind of surgery can only be performed by a divine creator, right? Ultimately, therefore, doors for the gospel, that kind of phrasing, there are not so much opportunities. Those are happening all the time, really. What gets in the way each time are spiritual forces and human nature, human attitudes, spiritual blindness, sin, hurt, arrogance, and so on. These are what are the shut doors. These closed doors, these hearts that have put defenses up, they're then muting how the good news gets received. We can share the good news to we're blue in the face as clearly as we like, but if that door's up, it's not getting in, is it? And Paul here, he's quite happy to be talking about Jesus, but he knows there's a door in the way, and unless it opens, there'll always be that blockage for the mystery to be fully declared and received. And so he says, pray, pray. This is a spiritual battle. God absolutely can use our most rubbish of attempts at any moment. 
and he does. But there is something precious and powerful when it's preceded by and soaked in prayer. There's a greater unlocking and a release. Proves it time and time again. Because then, when we're doing that, we are walking in sync with his timing. We're engaging with the chosen individuals he wants us to meet that day. Uh, We're discovering the words he wants us to use and so on. It's not magic, it's a partnership with God and his people. He's saying, come and partner with me. Let's walk this together. Let's be in sync. You'd be surprised what we're going to do. A greater expectation for what might come, isn't there? Now, please, please don't think for a minute that I've nailed any of this. I haven't. Got my old plates on, as always. But I do know the times when I've been actively praying about doors to open and who to talk to and how, in the moment, to speak to them and what to share and when to shut up and when to listen and so on, they become the memorable conversations that bear gospel fruit. It's quite a coincidence. Funny that. He's the one who wants to see people saved far more than any of us do, right? And he's the one with the best plan for how that should happen. And so we need to be aware of our need for prayer as we endeavour to share the gospel with those around us. Amen? I want to finish early because I want us just to get on praying, to be honest. But I just want to tell one story about the power of prayer um, as before I finish. Duncan Campbell was a Scottish minister in the 50s and 60s. And on Easter Monday, 1952... Um, he was sitting on a platform after speaking at the Faith Mission uh, Convention in, in Bangor in Northern Ireland. He was there for a few days. He was like their guest speaker. And he just finished speaking. He sat down. And while he was just there in prayer, he sent an inner voice say to him, Bernaray, which is a small island in the Hebrides, somewhere he'd never visited before, but he knew the name, Bernaray. And, uh, and it's like, a bit odd. Anyway, bowed his head silently, carried on praying. And again, he heard the, heard the name, Bernaray. So he prayed on. The name came a third time. Bernaray. So he turns to the chairman of the mission convention who's sitting next to him on the platform. He goes, I'm ever so sorry. You're going to have to excuse me. The Holy Spirit has told me I'm to go to Bernaray. And uh, the chairman, he objects. It's like, but you're the main speaker tomorrow as well. And uh, uh, Duncan will have nothing to, nothing was going to stop him. He knew Holy Spirit had spoken. So he went to the hotel packed his suitcases, contacted the airport, and there were no flights to Bernaray because it was such a small island and it was so out of the way. So he caught the nearest, the first flight he could get to the nearest, next best island in the Hebrides. And when he got there, he went down to the coast to ask how from here to get to Bernaray. And a fisherman goes, well, it's such a small out of the way island. There's no commercial means of getting there. But he said, for a certain price, I'll take you. And the agreed amount happened to be pretty much what Duncan Campbell had left in his pocket. So the fisherman takes him across to Bernaray. And uh, when he gets there, he literally drops him off and disappears, goes back. So suddenly, Duncan Campbell is just on this remote beach with his suitcases. So he climbs the bluff, and there's a ploughed field there. And there's a farmer. So he goes, "Uh, hello, please, could you go to the nearest pastor and tell him that Duncan Campbell has arrived? The, fisherman, uh, the farmer's like, excuse me, what? And he goes, well, we haven't even got a pastor. All the churches have died on this island. And, uh, and he says, we haven't got a pastor for the church right now. So he goes, have you got any other leaders left, any remaining people of these churches left? He goes, yeah, we've got some elders, as they call them at the time. 
He goes, well, could you go and tell the nearest one that Duncan Campbell has arrived? So this farmer goes, oh, all right then. So Duncan sits on his suitcase and waits, and the farmer goes off. He comes back a little while later, and he goes, uh, the leader was expecting you. He says, he has a place ready for you, and he's already announced the meetings begin at 9 o'clock tonight. What had been happening while Duncan was in Bangor at this mission convention in Northern Ireland three days earlier, this man, this church leader, had spent the day praying in his barn for God to send revival to this island. And God gave him a promise while he was praying from Hosea chapter 14 that says, I will be as the Jew unto Israel. And this man claimed this as a promise. And in faith, he kept praying into it. And the man's wife heard him praying in the barn. She was in the house, so she heard him shouting out in the barn, Lord, I don't know where he is, but you know, and with you, all things are possible. You send us Duncan Campbell. That's what he said. And he was so sure that he would be there in three days that he made all the arrangements to use the local church building and had already announced the services. Great revival came to that island. It's a whole other story. There's plenty more to it. I've got to cut it short. But a great door for the word was open that no man could shut because God had opened it. Many lives were transformed as a result. And it's not the only time it happened there either. And Duncan Campbell's biographer, when he was telling this story, he says this. It's his words. He says, when God has people who prevail in prayer and who know how to recognize the voice of the Spirit and obey without question, there is no limit to what God can do. Prayer unlocks the door for the, a door for the mystery of Jesus to be declared and for us to be in the right place at the right time with the right heart for lives to be transformed. And that's why I want to finish early. I think we should just pray. Pray for a door for the word to be opened that the mystery of Jesus might be declared that people get to meet with him. We're not inviting people to church. We're inviting people to meet with Jesus. The church bit will work itself out. But there are doors that are shut. We know of individuals. We've been sharing about Jesus and witnessing for years, and you see little or no change. We don't know what's going on in their heart secretly, but we know there's doors shut that need to be opened, aren't there? In this community, in this nation, let alone across the world, we need to be praying. Oh, that's, all, that's all I think we just need to get on with it, really. Um, as David was saying, we're very aware as we grow, it's harder to hear. Um, so we've got this mic here. I don't know if it's on. Can you unmute, unmute the um, sharing mic, please, Jim? Thank you. Just come and line up and use this microphone. If you're unable to, give us a wave before you start praying so we can get the handheld to you. Let's just take it in turns. Do you feel your heart burning for this? Do you feel your heart burning for doors to be open, for Holy Spirit to move, for him to open eyes, for him to draw the people he's already got his hands on that we may even be surprised by? Loved ones, individuals, we're going to be praying for this again tonight, but you can't pray for it enough. Let's be praying into this. I'd love to see revival in Home Bay. The community turned upside down for Jesus. Yeah? That Home Bay is known to be a town with a banner over it that says, Jesus, King of Kings. That's what I want to see. What's our expectation? Let's pray. Let's pray. Take it in turns. Come and use this mic. Give us a wave for this one. Let's be praying.